This is Guns and Butter. From what I'm reading in the law, it is incredibly draconian. It is. Quarantine, isolation, forced medical examination, forced medical treatment, um, and in particular, the tracking devices are really causing a stir among legal scholars right now. The new rules from August 2016 allow what is called medical tracking. It is under the... Um, under the definition section, they call it electronic or internet-based monitoring. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Greg Glazer. Today's show, the new CDC rules, medical surveillance. Greg Glazer is a practicing attorney headquartered in Northern California. He is a vaccine rights attorney helping doctors and parents. Today we cover the Center for Disease Control's proposed new rules, which when implemented will constitute an expansion of federal powers under the Federal Public Health Service Act. We also examine the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, elements of which have been adopted by many states, and discuss implications of the CDC's new proposed rules, along with possible responses, including a proposed new law. Greg Glazer, welcome. Hi, Bonnie. It's nice to be here. Thank you. On August 15th, 2016, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, invited public comment on new proposed rules under the heading of Control of Communicable Diseases, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. What is the CDC talking about? What are these proposed new rules? The, the proposed new rules are the implementation of the Federal Public Health Service Act. And the CDC currently has broad powers to apprehend people who are moving across state lines and to uh, check them for communicable diseases and other health concerns. And these new proposed rules are an expansion of federal power. So the way the system currently works is that the federal government will investigate a, an outbreak. So for example, if someone is on a plane and it's known that someone has Ebola on that plane, they might stop the plane and check everyone on the plane. Um, so that's how the system currently works. But the new proposed rules that just came out that you mentioned, they are going to instead look at every plane, regardless of whether there is Ebola on that plane or not. They're going to look at every traveler. And so the new proposed rules are an expansion of the current Public Health Service Act. Well, now, when you say that the government is going to look at all planes, uh, is it actually that they have the power to do that? They're not actually doing that, are they? They are not currently doing that. Um, just like before there were TSA scanners, uh, before there were um, those machines that you walk through at the airport, um, it was questionable whether or not the federal government had the power. But uh, after the World Trade Center attacks, then the federal government stepped in and offered this quote unquote remedy to uh, protect people. But of course, it took away part of their civil liberties. And they didn't just um, target uh, and look at terrorists, right? They looked at everyone. So 
the idea is the same with communicable diseases. They're not just going to be looking at the Ebola plane. They're looking at every single passenger. And so this is a dramatic shift. These proposed rules that you mentioned from August 2016 are a dramatic shift in federal policy. And they are an expansion of this current federal law called the Public Health Service Act, which does allow the government very broadly to um, investigate Americans to see if they have communicable diseases, quarantine individuals who have communicable diseases. And there is a specific list of diseases that are subject to um, these powers. And they're laid out by executive order. And on that list currently, you have um, diseases like cholera, diphtheria, smallpox, but they're adding to the list measles. So the idea is that if you are traveling and you are suspected of having one of these diseases, like let's say it's cholera or let's say it's measles, and then you were to find yourself at a checkpoint or interacting in some way with one of these public health officers, then they would investigate you. They do a medical examination to see uh, if you are uh, reasonably suspected of having one of these diseases. And what that examination looks like is that you can be detained for a time period between 20 minutes and two hours, and they can ask you questions about your um you know, your name, where you live, about your, uh, your current health. They can do a, uh, a brief examination of you to see if it looks like you have a fever. Um, they're basically looking for criteria within their definition of ill person. And this is all inside the new proposed rules. It says an ill person is someone who has a fever, feels warm to the touch, and they have a history of any of the following, like a skin rash, difficulty breathing, persistent cough. So you sort of get the idea of what they're going to be looking for. So basically, if you're going through a checkpoint and you look ill, then you can be detained. And if you are reasonably suspected of having one of these diseases on the list, say it's measles, then you go into the next step in their processing, which involves quarantine. Now, quarantine can take a couple of different um, avenues. Uh, the first avenue is that they can uh, have you sign an agreement and then send you home and say, look, just we want to monitor you. We want to make sure that you're not going to infect other people. Can you just stay home for a few days and let's see what happens with this? You know, we'll check in with your doctor and all that. So that would be a pretty friendly approach that would respect civil rights. And then there's a, a different approach. And this the different approach would be more of what you would expect during a, uh, a serious outbreak where there's lots of people traveling with measles or lots of people traveling with uh, one of the uh, infectious diseases. Then they don't have the ability to send everyone home, so they send people into quarantine camps, concentration camps, which may sound very radical, but it actually is something that has happened in history, in quarantine history, if you go back about a century. So the new proposed rules, Bonnie, that you highlighted from August 2016, um, provide some detail on what infectious disease looks like, what quarantine looks like, who can be quarantined, who can be examined, uh, how long an examination can take, can take, what due process looks like for 
someone who wants to challenge their um, their confinement during a quarantine. And so the rules are an expansion of government power. Now, the CDC is claiming these new powers, I guess, uh, by putting out these rules. They've asked for public commentary. I understand that the public comment period is now closed. I took a look at regulations.gov and saw that there are over 15,500 comments on the proposed new CDC rules, and all comments that I saw were objecting to these new CDC rules. Where do these rules stand presently? The rules are currently under review, um, and the comments are currently under review. So the proposed rule was uh, made public in August, and then public comments came out, exactly as you highlighted. And so the CDC is reviewing those comments, and then they will approve the rule soon. And once they approve the rule, then it becomes a regulation, an official regulation, and then it can be implemented. So the, um, the pattern, the historical pattern of the CDC when they do this is that they're going to approve their rules as written. They might make a few changes. They might incorporate a tiny bit of public comment. But from the past, they, they only make small changes to what they, um, what they want to do. And usually it's just lip service that they pay. So just for example, um, in one of their previous um, changes, they had, and this isn't to this particular rule, but it was on another, another item that was also on quarantine. Uh, there was a big blowback and uh, people didn't like that the rule said that they would be that they would be controlling people during an emergency. So the CDC changed it. They said, okay, well, we'll change it. Now we're just going to be protecting people. But they didn't change any of the substance of their proposed rule. They just changed one word to make it sound more palatable. You know, it's like marketing. So we can expect the same thing here. Um, the writing's on the wall for federal policy. Um, they have a very clear um, program uh, that they want to implement, and it dates all the way back to the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. They've done so through uh, federal channels at John Hopkins University and Georgetown University, and we could talk about that model act if you like. Uh, yes, I do want to talk about the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering first of all, what, in your view, could be the initial use of these new CDC rules? That is to say, what might constitute the opening salvo? I mean, I'm assuming now they have not really rolled this out. You've mentioned travel. What does travel have to do with this? Yes, the federal government is limited in its authority under the United States Constitution. And so the federal government often relies on the Commerce Clause, which allows them to regulate interstate commerce and travel. And so the, the fact that these regulations are directed toward travel helps emphasize how they will be initially utilized. Now, this is also a slippery slope when we look at it historically, but um, for right now, we can expect that um, these these new rules to process individuals and check to see if they are infected with an infectious disease will be rolled out at airports and train stations and bus stations. And um, they are going to be looking for individuals and 
prepping people for what this looks like. It was the same thing with the, the TSA scanners. Um, you know, you don't see TSA scanners at schools. Um, you don't see them at the supermarket, for example, but you do see them at locations of travel because that's a place of federal authority. Well, Greg, you mentioned the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. What has that got to do with these new CDC rules? The Public Health Service Act, um, which is the federal rule that these new rules are implementing, um, it claims its authority under the United States Commerce Clause uh, in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. And that means that the federal government is limited in its authority to regulate commerce between the states. So infectious disease control is considered um, relevant to interstate commerce. And interstate commerce even applies beyond what one would think. You know, like imagine a truck traveling from uh, Kansas to California and think, well, that's interstate commerce because they're traveling between states. Um, but actually, interstate commerce has a much broader reading. The Supreme Court has found that it includes virtually all commerce, even if you sell an apple in your local farmer's market. It has the ability to impact prices on the apple market, which is interstate commerce. It's become illogical. Uh, we lawyers laugh at how illogical it has become, but it's, it's really no joking matter. Um, that uh, interstate commerce is this open door that allows the federal government to regulate um, wide areas of, uh, of activity in American life. And infectious disease and quarantine is one of those areas. I'm speaking to vaccine rights attorney Greg Glazer. Today's show, the new CDC rules, medical surveillance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, how has the Commerce Clause of the Constitution been used historically? Well, it was used historically to um, regulate the movement of goods between the states. So, for example, when uh, cholera broke out uh, in New York, and they were between New York and Maryland, and New York was just ravaged by it, Maryland wasn't, and they were trying to... Um, limit the goods that were transferred from one state to the next. Interstate commerce stepped in for that purpose. That's a public health example. But just overall, interstate commerce uh, has related to things like making it so that one state won't create a barrier to trade with another state, like imposing tariffs. And um, interstate commerce has also been applied to uh, implement federal policies against discrimination on the basis of race, for example. One famous case was of a hotel owner in uh, Mississippi or somewhere. And the hotel owner said that he wanted to discriminate against African-Americans. And um, the federal government said, well, you're not allowed to do that under federal law. He said, well, I'm not engaged in interstate commerce. They said, well, by just virtue of you having a hotel, you're engaged in interstate commerce. He said, fine, I'll, I'll only take Mississippians. They said, doesn't matter. You still are affecting interstate commerce, even, even if you only operate within the state. So the Commerce Clause has been a way for the federal government to uh, reach into the states and promote federal policy. And so even though it started off as being about tariffs and other things, it has quickly become about all federal policies. And so virtually, uh, gosh, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but I would guess above 95% of all federal law can be traced back to the Commerce Clause. 
well, how did the Commerce Clause come to have such power? Why is uh, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution used this way? What started that? That's a great question. Um, one of the most famous ways that the Commerce Clause became relevant in history from a lawyer's standpoint was during the New Deal, when President Roosevelt wanted to present his New Deal legislation, which included all sorts of government programs to you know, fix the roads and give people employment, get them into the Civilian Conservation Corps, sending money back home, taking people out of the cities and getting them into the country. You know, these were federal programs that were very controversial at the time. And the states said, um, no way, you can't do that. You're, you're stepping into our domain. These are usually state rules. Federal government said, no, we have this power under the Commerce Clause. And there was a series of decisions at the time which um, ruled against Roosevelt. So Roosevelt said, okay, I'm going to pack the court. You have nine judges right now. I'm going to increase the number to 15. So I'll, I'll get the number of judges that I want. And then the court said, okay, fine. We will agree with your New Deal legislation. We will rule that it is allowed under the Commerce Clause. And so it's that slippery slope. Once they changed the logic, you know, they went beyond the plain meaning of the words to allow this New Deal legislation, then it just opened the door. And then they couldn't shut the door after that. It just allowed the floodgates into federal rules. And, uh, you know, it's credited with getting America out of the Great Depression, for one. But also it helped build um, the military-industrial complex later and other aspects. It's been a mixed bag. Um, you know, the states are some of the worst oppressors of all of civil rights. So on some level, federal law has been helpful. On other levels, it's created this massive military-industrial complex. But yeah, the Commerce Clause has been the procedural mechanism to implement federal law. So let's say that these new CDC rules go into effect or these rules are adopted. I guess at the present time, that's not the case. But let's say that they go into effect. And then uh, what would happen? They would be able to use these new rules during some sort of health emergency. What, what could constitute a health emergency? Um, they can use the rules whether there's a health emergency or not. Um, under the Public Health Service Act, by executive order, they are allowed to investigate any case of infectious disease, even one case of cholera or one case of tuberculosis, single case of measles is enough to justify federal power. But the extent of the response will depend on whether you're dealing with one case or 10,000 cases. So a reasonable response to one case might be considered different for 10,000 cases. So the answer to your question of what does it look like when these rules are are rolled out among the among the states and in federal territories, it looks like the government beginning with travel, where they set up these public health workers or public health officers, and they will be screening all passengers for signs of infectious disease. And anyone can report on this. So that means the stewardess can report on it or a pilot or, you know, a TSA agent. And then probably also means there's going to be federal funding. So at the same TSA um, checkpoint, you know, where there's a long line, they're going to have a camera on you. And if you're sniffling, um, if you look unwell, then you might get pulled out of line. 
and then brought into a room and then questioned for 20 minutes to two hours, possibly um, asked to give a urine sample or um, to provide other other information that can incriminate you, basically. But also, you know, for them, it's just public health monitoring. And then if you're suspected of having an infectious disease, the way these rules work is that they um, they give you a proposed agreement. Um, and this is also unprecedented. It's causing quite a stir. The federal government will give you a piece of paper called an agreement where they tell you that you will agree to all of their quarantine rules. So you will agree to um, go to such and such camp or you will agree to stay at home or you will agree to such and such treatment if it's necessary. And they will present this to you as if you had to sign it before you leave. And so the answer to part of your question, Bonnie, is that nobody really knows what this looks like because it's unprecedented. But they did lay out some specifics in their plan for what those quote unquote voluntary agreements look like. Well, what are some of those specifics? Is that what you were just talking about? Yes. Yeah. In the voluntary agreement, they can lay out what kind of measures you will agree to. So they will be saying things like, um, you agree to wear a wearable tracking device, for example, like a, a bracelet that can track you, or you agree to uh, respond to our emails every day to check on the status. You agree to the installation of a uh, video monitoring, you know, so they will give you, you know, a little pack to take home, which will include a little webcam or something like that. And you will agree to report to your health officer until the conclusion of your detention. And they can also make it so that you will agree to consult with a doctor or maybe even their own doctor. So part of the rules are very general as to what can be contained in these voluntary agreements. And then part of it is specific. So I'll just might be helpful if I read it to you. It says the CDC may enter into an agreement with an individual upon such terms as the CDC considers to be reasonably necessary, indicating that the individual consents to any of the public health measures authorized under this part, including quarantine, isolation, conditional release, medical examination, hospitalization, vaccination, and treatment, provided that the individual's consent shall not be considered as a prerequisite to the exercise of any authority under this part. Close quote. So that tells you that the federal government is claiming the ability to get you to agree to anything. This is a time when civil rights lawyers are concerned because the risk is very high of the government violating our civil rights. Are there organizations or attorney groups that you're aware of that have voiced concern with regard to these new CDC uh, rules? Yes, there are. Um, one of the most prominent among them is a group called the National Health Freedom Action, and they are basically a coalition of many uh, different health freedom groups and interests to make a point about how these proposed rules from August 2016, how these rules are violating civil rights. And they make it very clear that these rules are unprecedented in terms of how far they go, just like TSA screening was unprecedented at the time. And they make it clear that there's a, a deep risk that people will be confused 
by these voluntary agreements where they're agreeing to medical treatment before they even know what that treatment is. And, and then they, they lay out what they would like to see for, for due process, where people are um, allowed to say that they don't want forced medication, that they would prefer to be at home, and that the government will respect their, their rights. And it's very interesting that the government has not made it explicit in their rules that they will respect rights, that they won't force medication on, on the people. So the government and the people have this tenuous relationship when it comes to quarantine and forced vaccination. And so the, the groups that are opposed to this are, are very deep. Um, yeah, I gave you one example, but yeah, there's, there's many who, uh, who submitted comments. Just as you saw when you saw there were over 10,000 comments. Well, now has the ACLU weighed in on this? They have. The ACLU through, in particular, prominent professors at Boston University um, has said that they want a public health approach to quarantine rather than a police state approach to quarantine. And they made a whole presentation about it. And it's kind of interesting because um, you almost have to be careful what you wish for. Because in 2008, when they made their initial presentation, they said that the CDC didn't give clear guidelines on what they would do during quarantine and during uh, infectious disease uh, outbreak. So, you know, again, be careful what you wish for, because then when the CD comes out with their clear guidelines, the clear guidelines violate civil rights. And they didn't respect the ACLU. And now it's been, um, it's been months since the proposed rules came out, and we haven't heard any word from the ACLU that they're planning on challenging it. But then again, the, the rules haven't been implemented yet. So time will tell whether any lawyers group actually challenges this. And the CDC needs to be limited. And the only group at this time that can limit them is Congress. So we need to take action. You've talked about these agreements that, let's say these rules go into effect, uh, you're suspected of being sick, or maybe you have some disease or something, and then you agree to all of these measures and sign this thing. Well, what if you say, I don't agree? What happens then? Then the, the CDC still has all of its other powers. So the agreement is just a convenient way for them to um, create evidence against you. So if you don't agree, then you're basically um, an antagonist to them. So you don't know how, what that looks like. There's ways to, to successfully be adversarial where you say, look, I'm not going to agree to any of this stuff. You need to let me go right now. I want to speak with my lawyer. I want to speak with my doctor. And then if you do it correctly, they would take you seriously and respect your rights. So there is a way to do it right. But there's also the possibility that they don't respect you and they, they bring down the full weight of the Public Health Service Act against you, in which case you get churned by the system. So they put you into all the things that I said. You know, you've got your two-hour detention and questioning and they make you give a urine sample and then you go off to a camp where they forcefully medicate you and and you go to your administrative tribunal where some guy wearing a military uniform says, nope, you're supposed to be here. Next case. And then you're just stuck. 
Well, so so we don't really know whether or not your rights are going to be respected or not. Exactly, because it's unprecedented. And the um, the TSA example is pretty useful because we know that these body scanners have been legitimized and people have accepted them. And there's not some great challenge out there that is promoting civil rights and bringing us back to the way things were before the World Trade Center attacks. This is the new world order. This is how things are done. And so what the next pandemic brings is going to be a real test to the Republic of the United States. I'm speaking to vaccine rights attorney Greg Glazer. Today's show, the new CDC rules, medical surveillance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Obviously, the assumption is that these new guidelines, these new CDC rules would be rolled out if there was a pandemic or something. But does there really have to be a pandemic for the CDC to start using these new rules on the public? Technically, a pandemic is not required. Uh, The new rules can be rolled out even for one isolated case of measles. Now, the likelihood of that happening is pretty low. And if there was just one case of measles, then you can expect the response is going to be very light. You'd get stopped at the airport. They'd say, look, you have the measles. You got to go home. Here's your voluntary agreement. Can you go see your doctor? And then please report back to us on a daily basis till we know this is taken care of. You know, they'll just be doing test cases like that. So I don't think we're going to see the full weight of this uh, federal authority until we get to the first the actual outbreak that happens from, from whatever source derived, whether it's outbreak caused by vaccines or outbreak caused by terrorism or outbreak just caused for natural reasons, whatever the source, um, then we'll know what real federal power looks like in this area. And from what I'm reading in the law, it is incredibly draconian. It is quarantine, isolation, forced medical examination, forced medical treatment, um, and in particular, the tracking devices are really causing a stir among legal scholars right now. Um, the, the new rules from August 2016 allow what is called um, medical tracking. It is under the, um, under the definition section, they call it electronic or internet-based monitoring. And it means that if you are one of those individuals who gets stopped. Let's say you're just driving your car and you go over a bridge and there happens to be a checkpoint there. And then you get stopped. They say, you know, please pull over into this lane. And then they ask you some questions. A public health officer asks you some questions. So during this stop where you are at the bridge and you don't have the ability to leave, you will quickly find that your civil rights are in jeopardy, which is the whole point, which is the whole problem that civil rights lawyers are worried about today. You mentioned the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. I remember this shortly after 9-11, September 11, 2001. There was a lot of talk about this Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, And there was talk about the state of California or the states enacting this act 
And then the discussion about it sort of went away, and I haven't heard anything about it since. What is the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, and was this rolled out after September 11th? Yes, it was rolled out after September 11th, and it is proposed legislation. Uh, It's federally funded, so basically it's a proposed law that came from the Pentagon, and it was put through the Center for Law and Public Health at Georgetown and John Hopkins. They're like the front organization, the front university that took the funding and then made this proposed law. And it came from law professors, Lawrence Gostin and David Fidler. Um, They were kind of the front men for it. And Hillary Clinton's health task force was involved. And this proposed law came out and it was cleared for publication in March of 2001. But they waited until September 2001, after the World Trade Center attacks, to publish it. And it was a radical departure from previous rules on quarantine. And it granted massive power to the state to um, force individuals to undergo medical examinations, to track them, including their genetic information, force them to be vaccinated, treated, quarantined mandating all healthcare providers report cases, so reporting on each other, um, forcing pharmacists to report unusual, even prescription rates. Just It was like this full-on approach to quarantine and infectious disease that was rolled out right after the World Trade Center attacks. And just very suspicious that it had that timing. Also, the fact that it was funded by the Pentagon should help clue you into what's really going on behind the scenes here. This is part of the military industrial complex. And quarantine is not some small thing that just never happens. If it does become relevant, it'll become relevant to basically everyone in America at the same time. So it has this huge potential for impact. It's like a sleeping giant that can just lie dormant. So anyway, this proposed law that came from the Pentagon uh, called the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act It has been implemented in part among the 50 states, uh, some more than others. Some of my research shows that about 38 states and and Washington, D.C. have passed um, parts of it. But overall, it really never took off. Um, It never got fully accepted by the states because it's hard to pass model legislation in, in every state. And the reason why they wanted to pass it in every state in addition to being the fact that they are the military industrial complex, is because traditionally um, quarantine and public health comes from the states. These are state laws. And so it was thought that the public would only accept and the courts would only allow um, these public health measures if they came as state laws. But the, the, um, the notice of proposed rulemaking that we were discussing earlier in the show today uh, from August 2016 that is a federal regulation. So there's this state-federal um, dichotomy here. But yeah, the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act would be a state law. And it is incredibly draconian uh, when, you, when you read it. I've read both parts of it. The, its original form and its later form, is they call it turning point. And it says in no uncertain terms, you can be forcefully vaccinated. You can be forcefully uh required to go into a camp. Um, They pay just lip service to what due process looks like. So 
if you want to challenge your incarceration during the time of your quarantine, then you get a, um, a military tribunal. So it's the same things that we were talking about earlier in the show. That's what this model law was. So you can see they come from the same source, which is what our research shows. Well, what has the California legislature adopted out of the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act? The answer to that is on a table. The new CDC rules are just going to supersede all of this. Are they going to need this Model State Emergency Health Powers Act? Yes, because there are multiple layers of authority. The new rules relate to the federal government's authority, and the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act relates to state law. I see. So, so California has implemented aspects of the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, more than just one definition. They have enacted the, for example, uh, in 2003, uh, they enacted the California Health Tracking Act, which allowed the, it basically allows statewide health tracking, um, which integrates their data systems and it gets the agencies working together to um, target areas which they feel are most in need of infectious disease control measures. Uh, that's one example of how they implemented the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. Uh, another, um, this was from 2005, they authorized local police officers to enforce the orders of the Department of Public Health and local health officers for the purpose of preventing the spread of contagious disease. So that means that the California Department of Public Health is not just some small government agency. Now they get to spread their wings because now every local cop can enforce their orders. So that gives them boots on the ground, which is a big deal. And then California has implemented other aspects of the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act as well. And then would military tribunals be a part of the government response to a pandemic or a health emergency under this Model State Emergency Health Powers Act? Absolutely. Uh, that was one of the big points in the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act, they wanted to lay out a clear system for those military tribunals so that it would give legitimacy to what they're trying to accomplish. Um, because they were afraid that a court would strike down their whole system. Because, I mean, just think about it. You can take people right off the street, take them away from their family, disrupt their custody over their children and then just house them all for because they're resisting a vaccination. I mean, this is incredibly draconian. And so the the federal government was uh, very worried that they wouldn't have this power that a court would strike it down. So they wanted to be very detailed in their proposed law here by saying that they were going to give due process and make sure that the individual had plenty of time to subpoena witnesses and present evidence and there'd be a hearing and but this is all just for the surface it's all just so that the, the law would pass scrutiny under the constitution if ever reviewed by a court what if any safeguards are built into this model state emergency health powers act is there any provision in it for the individual to fight back or to go to court or resist Yes, the individual can go to court, but the court itself is only a military tribunal. What that means is that the court is like a conference room, and instead of a judge, 
there is a military officer and the normal rules of court do not apply, meaning that you don't have a complaint, uh, you don't have normal discovery. It's all separate military rules. So it's closed hearing um, and that type of thing. So the answer to your question is that uh, those are the only safeguard available to an individual uh, who does find themselves in one of these um, quarantine cases. I'm speaking to vaccine rights attorney Greg Glazer. Today's show, the new CDC rules, medical surveillance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, I know that you have talked about self-quarantine. What is self-quarantine? Yes, self-quarantine is a good thing. It is recommended by the ACLU. And it is the, um, it is the situation where an individual decides to stay at home uh, if they have an infectious disease or if they are suspected of having an infectious disease. So that means that the individual doesn't go to a quarantine camp. They aren't required to go to a hospital either. They simply stay put. That's called home quarantine or self-quarantine. And who did you say was uh, promoting uh, self-quarantine? And do you have that right in case of some kind of a pandemic uh, currently? Uh, yeah, it was the ACLU that proposed it. And we do not currently have the right explicitly. And this has been part of the problem, actually, that the lawyers for the ACLU have been saying, let's just make it very clear that we have the right to self-quarantine. Let's put it in the law that we have that right. But the government said, no, we won't give people the right to self-quarantine. Maybe we'll allow it. We're not ruling it out, but we're going to take it on a case-by-case basis. So so that's been a real problem. Now, is there a movement or a group that is promoting self-quarantine? And if so, what are they doing? Yes. The ACLU is definitely continuing to promote self-quarantine. And um, I don't know what they're doing about it yet because the rule hasn't been implemented yet. But after the rule is implemented, the ACLU might sue. And also, um, I am working with a group called the Pandemic Response Project, And we have written a proposed law that would allow individuals the right to self-quarantine during any emergency, whether it's a natural disaster uh, that relates to an infectious disease or some type of infectious disease outbreak by terrorism or anything, any reason at all. An individual is free to self-quarantine during the outbreak. And also they they have an absolute right to refuse forced medical treatment any forced tracking device. So our organization, PREP, uh, Pandemic Response Project, has written a proposed law, and we have presented it to a congressman to see if they will move it forward in the United States Congress. Oh, that's very interesting. So you have a proposed law that your group or a group you're affiliated with is proposing for what, a federal law? That is correct. Uh, This would be a federal law. And it, it is a direct response to these proposed rules that we've been talking about on this show. And it would limit the power of the CDC dramatically so that individuals can, um, can know 
and be sure that they have the ability to go home to their families, to stay with their families, um, that they have the right to refuse medical treatment. Um, our goal is to make this law and these rights part of um, something that Americans can call their own, just like we have our Miranda rights and we know that we don't have to um, just give up those, those rights during a- any particular time. They, they just travel with us. And it would be the same thing with these rights that we are proposing um, that can travel with you uh, no matter where you go in America. Oh, I see. So then the Pandemic Response Project is in response to the new CDC rules that we've been discussing. Where could people find out more about the Pandemic Response Project? Yes, I would recommend that they can visit our uh, our website for this proposed uh, law, and we call it homesteadselfquarantine.org. Now, are there any laws that mandate vaccination in the event of an emergency? What is the role of the World Health Organization? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. According to the Congressional Research Service, there's no federal law or federal program that mandates vaccination uh, at any time. Um, but with that said, the federal government has also reserved the right to make one. Uh, to make a forced vaccination program. Also, uh, President Obama has said the same thing about uh, the flu shot that they've been working on, you know, a flu vaccine and that it'll be a voluntary program. But no federal official or federal law has come out and um, said that that they will not do forced vaccination. Um, it's So it's just this very ambiguous area of the law. And it's the same at the World Health Organization. Um, they have a system in place that um, empowers that empowers nation states and also their own health officers to implement infectious disease control measures. And yeah, mandatory vaccination has been one of the tools used by nation states um, to inoculate the public. But now forced vaccination would be a power that the CDC would appropriate for itself if it, in fact, it implements these new rules that they've proposed. Isn't that right? Um, I think so, yes. Um, I think that the answer to that question involves reading between the lines. So, for example, um, if we go to the CDC website today on this proposed rule, uh, they have an FAQ section. And in the FAQ section, it says that they have no plans to force vaccinate the public. Yet, we can read between the lines because in their own proposed rule, it says that they do have the ability to force vaccination and treatment. So it's like they have a PR marketing arm that's doing their website, and then they have the actual law itself, which is what I would focus on personally, the law. And the law itself is very draconian. It's very state deferential. And it does allow forced vaccination. Oh, it does. So the, the, so the new rules from a legal angle would allow it, but it doesn't mandate it uh, specifically. It, it doesn't state that. Exactly. Exactly. What are hospital-public-private partnerships? How would they go into effect? And, and where does the funding come from? Yeah, uh, this is a very interesting area of the law. 
So the United States government has an emergency preparedness policy, and that involves stockpiling drugs and medical supplies. It's called the Strategic National Stockpile. And when emergency preparedness plans are implemented, what happens is you have tiered levels of public and private partnerships where hospitals are taking their orders from various departments of the U.S. government, such as the HHS and FEMA, and the whole infrastructure is built around the idea of these funding programs. And the authority for each program is triggered by different events, such as you know, bioterrorism or natural disaster. So I'll, I'll give you an example. They have a hospital preparedness program, which is run by the HHS, and it's provided billions to state and local governments um, to work with private healthcare facilities, you know, hospitals, to ensure regional surge capacity in the event of a mass casualty incident. So what that means is that the, the states are um, partnering with hospitals, local hospitals, and the states are partnering with the federal government to get federal funds to make their hospitals um, able to handle patients in the event of an emergency. And that means patients from anywhere. Like you don't have to have a a, um, you know, a card to go to that hospital. You don't have to be a patient of that hospital or your doctor doesn't have to, to go there. You can go to any hospital during a mass casualty incident, like Katrina. You know, hospitals would take anyone. And they have federal funding for that. So the answer to your question of what does a public-private partnership look like, it looks, it looks exactly like that, where the government, the federal government provides the funds down through the tiers from the state government to the local government to the hospital. So, so the money flows down, as do the rules. So the rules for what the hospitals have to do, that also comes from the federal government. That means that if the federal government says you have to forcefully vaccinate people, well, then the hospitals will do it. You have a petition at change.org entitled Stop CDC Loopholes of Forced Medication Quarantine and Human Microchipping. Do the new CDC proposed regulations include human microchipping? Yes. Um, in, in my read of the document, yes. Um, the, the new proposed rules allow electronic or internet-based monitoring. And and it's defined as mechanisms or technologies allowing for the temporary public health supervision of an individual under conditional release. And it may include electronic mail, SMS text, video conference, and then the list just keeps going until you get to the more the worse ones. Then you get to wearable tracking technologies and other mechanisms or technologies as determined by the director. So you go from the very simple ones in the beginning, like email, okay, everyone's okay with that, right? Then you get to wearable tracking technologies. That's the worst one on the list. But another one that's even worse, it's other mechanisms or technologies. So what's worse than a wearable tracking technology, like a wearable bracelet? You know, so, so for example, if you went to a hospital today, you, know, you checked in as a patient, they give every patient today a wearable bracelet. And it has your medical record number on there. The nurse comes around, she scans your bracelet. This is done in all hospitals. She scans your bracelet, it pulls up your medical record, it shows if you're due for any meds, um, shows you know when your next appointment is, if you're going off to clinic, it's got all your details in there. So that's just how it's done today. It's been done that way actually for you know a decade at least. And then there are other mechanisms as well that they can do. So what does that look like? Does that involve microchipping? Does that involve um, other, it just says other mechanisms or technologies. And so 
this has caused quite a stir among lawyers and researchers as to what that means. And it's, it's frankly just irresponsible and dangerous that the federal government is claiming the authority to implement other mechanisms or technologies over the human body that's worse than wearable tracking technologies. Dr. Richard Pan, California State Senator and pediatrician, a sponsor of the draconian California SB 277 that repealed the personal belief and religious exemption to vaccination for attendance at public and private schools, is sponsoring new legislation. What is it? Do you know? Yes. uh, Dr. Pan is one of the most dangerous men in California. He is proposing new legislation, and it's very early. So far, he's only done a town hall meeting, to my knowledge. And his law, his new law, is called the Children's Bill of Rights. And this law says that your child has the right to be vaccinated. So think about that for a second. What does that mean? That means that if you as a parent choose that your child will be natural, meaning unvaccinated, then Dr. Pan's law comes in and says your child has the right to be vaccinated. So parent, if you are exercising your opinion that the child should be natural, then you're violating your child's right to be vaccinated. So that creates a, um, an adversarial relationship between parent and child, and it allows the state to step in and enforce the child's rights, not to be abused by their parent. And the parent, of course, would be abusing their child by not vaccinating them. Uh, well, by implication, would it also mean that a child could request a vaccination and uh, they could be vaccinated without their parents' consent? I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yes, yeah, that, uh, and, and that itself has become a growing area of the law as well, where doctors have questions as to when a child can provide consent to vaccination. Um, there's no great consensus right now, but it's about 12, age 12. So... In conclusion, could you explain why the primary battleground to deal with these new rules or policy is in the legislature? Yes, the legislature is right at the forefront of taking away our rights, but also recognizing our rights. And so the ability of the legislature to specify that we cannot be forcefully microchipped, that would be a wonderful step forward. And in fact, Hawaii has passed a law to that exact effect. And so um, the legislature has proven to represent the people uh, when they when they want. They can also represent uh, corporate interests like Big Pharma when they want. So they are they are the battleground for the the health freedom movement on issues of forced vaccination. Greg Glazer, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bonnie. been listening to Greg Glazer. Today's show has been The New CDC Rules, Medical Surveillance. Greg Glazer is a practicing attorney headquartered in Northern California. He is a vaccine rights attorney helping doctors and parents. For more information about the Pandemic Response Project, visit homesteadselfquarantine.org. That's homesteadselfquarantine.org. Attorney Greg Glazer blogs at calvaccinefreedom.com.
www.wordpress.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, Yourself. 